Welcome to the Bible Archives. Today we are going to explore Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 8. And as we've gone through Genesis, you probably experienced something that, well, I'm assuming is part of the conversation. Um, there's, there's probably three types of listeners to this podcast, and it's the people who hear this stuff and go, wow, I never, I never knew that before. And then there's the people who listen to this and go, yeah, I kind of didn't know that. It's cool to see that get fleshed out. And then there's the people who listen to this and go, nice try, but you missed a bunch. Um, so whatever category you fall into, there's still something you can gain from this, even if it's just testing what you uh, already know and uh, loving the fact that you know more than us. We are simply pretending to be experts for a couple moments, and then we go back to our regular lives. So we don't we don't have uh, the consensus on everything about Genesis, but we are trying. So if you if you do know stuff that we missed. Um, or information that we didn't quite bring up. It could be that we just cut that, um, but it could be that we don't know. And we'd love to uh, love to continue to flesh out the library of our understanding of the text. So let's get into Genesis 6. This is one of the most known popular stories from the Bible, and yet it has so many complexities and pieces that I just don't hear get brought up. So we're going to dive in pretty deep with... Uh, these next few chapters. Yeah, so I think it would be a good idea to start right at the very beginning of chapter 6, and we have this odd little story, a little snippet that kind of precedes the story of the flood. And this is a case where we see human beings have been spreading through the earth the way they're supposed to do. And as they do this, children are born to them, daughters are born to them. And it says, the sons of God, which no one is really exactly clear who that is, but some kind of deities um, see these women and they think they're really beautiful and so they want to sleep with them. So they come down to earth and they will take them as wives. Well, this is a breach of the divine human condition or there are boundaries that are supposed to be had. And it's similar in a way to the boundary that we see broken when Eve tries to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because she is kind of like she's not staying in her lane. There's, there's divine things and there's human things and she's not following the laws that she was given. And so by doing that, she kind of creates a disruption in that boundary. Well, in that case, it's a human being who reaches out and tries to be divine, tries to do something like God. In this case, we see divine beings trying to be with humans. And it, again, it creates a disruption. It creates a problem. Because what, we, what usually happens then in that situation is the quality or the length of human life becomes shortened or changed. So, of course, in Eve's case, uh, she loses immortality for her and Adam. And in this case, God says then, after this happens, I'm not going to deal with human beings any, for any longer of a length of time except for 120 years, this is the length of time that is going to be the life of a human. But I wanted to ask you, Tyler, do you know anything about why that is? Because I really didn't find a lot about that. Yeah, so this is one of the strangest passages in the entire Bible. And when I'm, when I'm walking through Genesis with, with people, they get here and they ask that same question. Yeah. And usually I'll tell people, go look it up. Go, go see what you can find. 
And what is interesting is most of the commentaries, and this is where I could definitely be missing something, but most of the commentaries, most of the information that I've explored, uh, everybody either skips this part <laughs> or gives, you know, a couple slight references and then moves, moves quickly on. Mm-hmm. So you get this, this first part. We just got done with the genealogy. It ended with Noah or Noach. And now we find, okay, people are multiplying. One of the first things we're told, well done. They're also multiplying on the face of the ground. So there's that relationship with the ground. So things are going good so far. And that that little uh, introduction there helps connect what's about to happen with what's been going on in the narrative so far. And then you get this strange passage. You get get the daughters, you got the sons of God, they take them as wives. Then their lifespan's limited. Mm -hmm. And and I do think you got to hold on to that part. Then you also get this weird reference to the Nephilim being on the earth. And when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans and bore children, and then we're told these were the heroes of old warriors of renown. And you don't often get language like that in the text. So, yeah, who are, who are these sons of God in Nephilim? And specifically, what makes them different from the daughters of humans? Um, and then, why does this lead to a limiting of lifespan? And eventually, why does this lead to the flood? And all this can get real sci-fi real quick. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not interested in that. All right. Um, so, the first thing I would say is that this seems to be a polemic against uh, particular narratives. And there's lots of theories and rabbit holes that we can entertain. But the, the common narrative here is that the divine, these divine demigods, right, mingle with humans. And they create these demiurges in response and heroic personas. And if you're paying enough attention to ancient Near Eastern culture, you should start picking up that this is a normal uh, articulation of primitive history. In Genesis, however, they are simply offshoots of the creator God of Israel. So I think the, the first thing that we're seeing is a different articulation of these sort of historic heroes and past beings that people thought mythically uh, ventured through the earth. But then that raises another problem because there seems to be an acceptance that some sort of realm of beings existed they're still under Adonai, Genesis is clear about, mm-hmm. but is this giving credence to there's a little bit of a complication with monotheism, which you're going to see this again in Genesis. So it's not an abnormal thing to see. The narrative, however, appears to want to show Adonai's power over these beings to separate them, right? Okay. That the, common, yeah. the common celestial perspective of ancient Near Eastern culture is getting disturbed and disrupted by Israel's God. And just separating those perceived beings that are, let's, let's be honest, are still part of the, the common cultural framework of the ancient people. Right. And Genesis goes, hey, you know, it doesn't quite work like that. It actually is like this. We'd like for it to say, and none of those things existed. There's no Nephilim. There's no... Uh, Demiurge sons of God. Well, it doesn't say that. It it, it accepts their existence, but make sure to say, uh, don't give them as much power as you culturally do. And this also appears to be a problem because the the celestial perspective, 
would be hedging into the problem of Genesis 3, which is also immortality. Okay. Right? Because these heroes of old, the the primitive demiurge kind of beings and that that ancient perspective, uh, if they exist, and we're going to see this as the flood story goes on, there's this question of immortality that's brought up, but Genesis 3 already handled that. It already gave us an etiology for uh, that situation. But this was a major theme in ancient Near Eastern literature. So such offspring of human and demiurge would therefore, they're supposed to have a uh, immortal nature to them, right? Okay. If if the, the, the daughters of humans and the sons of God and the Nephilim are procreating, these humans, as we see in a lot of ancient mythology, would have a divine human component to them that's intermixed. Sure. Right. You think of like a Hercules character that's or something what I was like that. Of, yeah. Right. They were actually pretty common, those kind of And, and so, it, again, it, it accepts that depiction um, where we would want it to say that's not even real. Well, no, it, it accepts that depiction. But the emphasis of Genesis here is God limits the lifespan. He reverses that attempt to overextend, that push for immortality, that that push to be like a demigod. And I think the lifespan thing is included just to say, yeah, no, that's not a thing. Okay. That's out. So on one hand, this is a polemic against um, the common myths of the culture. Mm Mm-hmm. And you get these this emphasis of God's spirit and essence and force of life is different from everything else, including these heroic demigods that people talk about. On the other hand, I think this is a, an attempt to give an explanation for why people don't live as long as these supposed heroes of old. So that's what I think is going on with that really strange thing there. That was a bit of a yeah. jaunt myself, but um, that's that's how... I, I admit that for the monotheistic perspective, there's going to be some problems there. You're you're giving up some ground. But I also understand why a narrative such as Genesis would want to address those issues mm-hmm. and uh, try to show that the God of Israel is more powerful, et cetera, than all of these and is in control. And that's going to be really important then for the flood narrative that comes. And in my opinion... All of that stuff is superseded by the inclusion of a very particular word, which is flesh. And that word flesh is going to come up again and again throughout Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Okay. So that's what I see is going on there. From there, the fleshness issue comes up. um, And the next thing we read is that this multiplying population, they've caused a problem, right? And the problem that we're going to see, because it'd be easy to go, that first section and the flood, how are they connected? Yeah. Well, the problem that's going to happen is one that we saw hinted at just now. And it's the same problem that we saw hinted at in Genesis 4. And it's animosity between people. It's not cooperating. It's not being one together. And it's it's the taking of the breath of life. And somehow this is connected to the flesh of these beings who might be attempting immortality, but God puts them in their place. So that's kind of how I transitioned that these two texts do lead into each other, I think. Okay. Yeah. It's, it almost seems to me that when I read it, it's as if the Bible writer was taking those stories about those heroes and, and, and God men and saying, this is 
partly why the earth became to the point where humans, every thought in their mind was bad all the time, that it's because these men were violent and um, because this was causing this problem. And it's almost kind of like he was saying, knowing these stories, having this part of your culture creates the violence in human beings. So it's almost kind of, you could say, sometimes people think, well, violent video games or whatever cause problems in society. Hearing these stories and knowing these stories about these heroes and these gods might lead people to, again, like you said, try to overextend a little yeah, bit well, their just, thoughts. Just read that first part of Genesis 6 and then transition mm-hmm. into the flood through the yeah. lens of Genesis 3, Genesis 4. He, human beings are overextending. Right. And you've got these demiurges and they're... Uh, complicit in the overextension. What does that overextension lead to? And that's where this word flesh just keeps coming back up and coming back up. And the flesh is separate from God's spirit, God's essence, God's transcendence. There's There's a difference there that this is pointing out. And what happens when that flesh overextends? Well, that's what we that's what we read next. You get the chaos as opposed to the order. And then it talks about how the thought of humans was just bad all the time. And here you get that idea of God not being able to interact with that. Um, what's interesting about these flood stories, then, now that we start to get into the flood, is how closely parallel these stories become with other ancient Near Eastern and Mesopotamian cycles, narrative cycles about floods. Almost every one of the cultures in that area have some kind of a flood story, and they're almost identical in some cases to the Genesis flood story. So, for example, one of the oldest ones we have is what they call the Zia Sudra story. Zia Sudra was a king, probably was actually a real person. Um, he was real king of Su- Surapurik, I think is the name of his, his area. And he's listed in this, in this list of the Sumerian kings, so we do know he was probably a real person. But just like perhaps with the Arthur cycles, a lot of times someone could be a real person, and yet the stories told about them are legends. We even do that today with George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. Obviously, George Washington is a real human being. The story about the cherry tree is something, tells us something about who he is. <clears throat> so that's kind of what's going on here with Zia Sudra. Um, There is a flood, the gods decide to destroy human beings. Oftentimes in these Mesopotamian stories, it's for no other reason than the gods are irritated by humans. They make too much noise. They keep us awake. They're, they, you know, they, they're not doing the things they're supposed to do. And so the gods will just capriciously decide to destroy humans. And sometimes one god will decide to destroy it, and then another god doesn't agree. So that god will go to a human being and say, well, you're a good person, so I'm going to save you. With Ziyasudra, it's exactly the same story. He is told by the gods, you need to build an ark, cover it with pitch, put the animals inside, take your wife, there's going to be a flood. And he does this thing. And the flood lasts for seven days, and then his ark comes to rest on a mountain. He opens up the window. He sends out doves and ravens. One finally comes back, and he knows that it's time to go out of the ark. And then at that point, he offers a sacrifice, and we see that Noah does this as well. And because in the Mesopotamian story, the gods kind of forget the fact that they need humans to give them sacrifices because that's the way they eat. That's the way they live is through human sacrifices of animals, um, but that humans making sacrifices to them. So they flock around, and because they do this thing, then it's like then he's given you know, the chance to live. So that's a very, very common story, and that also closely parallels the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the Babylonian story, and in his case, it's Utnapishtim, and he is also given immortality because he does the sacrifice and he, he, and he helps the gods. Um, 
So that's something that we need to consider. And what's interesting about that is it shows us, though, even though the stories are very parallel to one another at first glance, the stories in Genesis give us a different view of who God is. So the gods of this Mesopotamian people, the Babylonian gods, the Sumerian gods, they don't really have any particular moral value to what they're doing. They just go ahead and decide, we don't like humans anymore, let's just get rid of them. But this is something that we've talked about with Genesis overall. And, and uh, I mean, I've, I remember reading somewhere that there's been hundreds and hundreds of flood narratives found yeah. from different tribes and cultures. So the fact that Israel has a flood narrative, when it, nobody would be like, wow, that's a great idea. It would be, and what are they trying to say through theirs? Yes. And, and I think we brought this up in the, the first, the overview episode on Genesis, uh, this idea of a retcon that's used in comic books where somebody will take the same story and sort of overlay it and hash through it, but then change something. And the point is in the change. And so as we're reading uh, Genesis 6, and this whole flood narrative, well, shoot, when we're reading Genesis, pretty much, uh, you, we, can't, we can't be antagonistic to the similarity between Genesis and other cultures. I think the Jewish people were intentional with that. It requires us then to pay attention. What, what is the saying differently? Why did they write it down this way? What's the point? What's the retcon? And so as we're reading through this, we could go like, oh, they're just saying that uh, the, the Bible stole from these ancient cultures. Yeah, they did. But it's a polemic against them. They're trying to counter them by using their own stories. It's actually quite brilliant. And what we see so far in this is this very real difference between transcendence and uh, sentience or finitude, humans versus God. Mm -hmm. And God acting transcendently, this is where you're going to get. It's this God is different from all of those gods. You know, they're creating these floods and having these problems because they need something from humans. or they're trying to control things in a particular way and they're very involved. They're almost human-like. This God's not. This, this God transcends all of that. And therefore, the reason that there was a flood, and every culture had a flood, the reason that there's a flood is different from all those cultures. So we got to pay attention to the details. We got to see what's going on differently here. Um, and, and particularly within this text, you're going to, you know, when Amy was just talking about the New Middle East and the Epic of Gil Gil Gilgamesh, that almost sounds exactly like exactly they are like, exactly like Genesis. Mm -hmm. And so you have to find and what's what's like the one word even sometimes. Mm -hmm. What's the one line in there sometimes that's different and then that's where you got to focus in and go ah we see what they're doing here. Um now if we were to look at then how this flood starts. So it's not it's not the gods getting irritated mm -hmm. and uh them wanting to do something mean to humans. You take that now and we look at Genesis 6. Well, what's the situation in Genesis 6? Like I said, there's a comparison to Genesis 4. There's this animosity between people. They're not cooperating. They're not being one together, which was the whole crux of Genesis 2. And they're taking the breath of life from each other. And what we read is that um, there's a certain wickedness. The thoughts of hearts of uh, the thoughts of the hearts of human are evil continually. And it comes back to this word flesh. 
And this is why, because of the comparison to so many of these other cultural flood stories, I think that word flesh is important because it's trying to put humans in a particular place in comparison to a transcendent God. Uh, you know, if we're using classical philosophy, we would say that the gods of the Enuma Elish or the Epic of Gilgamesh, etc., um, they're not embodying transcendence in the classical sense. Mm-hmm. They're demigods, they're demiurges. This God does. Adonai is transcendent. Therefore, humans have this thing called flesh. But it's not just humans in general. It's a specific posture of the human being. This this frailness, it's of the body. Um, Sometimes the word flesh, you see it used elsewhere. It's just a euphemism for uh, specific male organs, which I don't know (laughs) what this word is rated, so I'm not going to go into the actual language here. Um, But that's how they understood flesh. And if you think back to Genesis 2, where um, Eve is created, the woman, you get that poetic line, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Right. And so there's this understanding that humans aren't just flesh, but they have a component of them. And flesh was always talked about in terms of weakness, where bone was talked about in terms of strength. So as we get to this part of the flood narrative, you have this disposition of created beings moving towards a specific end. And we might infer that this is the same problem of Genesis 3. Such knowledge and knowing makes possible what we're seeing here. Like I, I think back to Genesis 3 and I go, is this why they cover their flesh under the circumstances of what happened after they ate? They had a certain knowing, a certain knowledge, and what do they do? They cover their flesh. Right. Yeah. And now here we are and the flesh is causing similar problems. Does it all go back to that sort of knowing? Is this one of the predicaments that they've put themselves in? But most importantly, uh, the, the disposition is overtly obvious in human interaction with one another. And Genesis 6 is very clear and with creation. Now, uh, one thing I find really interesting is you get very anthropomorphic language about God. You do, yes. In, in this chapter, mm-hmm. um, God is sorry that he made humans, which notice doesn't say sorry that he made all of creation, only humans. <laughs> doesn't say much, does it? Um, and uh, he's going to blot them all out. And, and that does include even creation. And that's going to bring up something that we'll see a little bit later as well. Um, and... The other stories that we have about these deities are also very anthropomorphic, right? They're mm-hmm. irritated, they're frustrated, they're upset, they're uh, they're empathizing with some humans if they don't like the other gods, and they're fighting amongst themselves. Um, here we have anthropomorphic language as well, and part of that is this is a particular source uh, of writing that you know, same thing you saw with Genesis two. You're getting the, you're getting that Adonai language. So this the the very Yahwistic source. Yeah, that's right a Yahwistic source right here. Um, it kind of switches back and forth quite a bit. In but this that's story. that's the thing about Genesis mm-hmm. uh, six through eight yeah. is you actually have to keep track. You really do. of which source this is, and you in, in the easiest way to do it. I think we said this in the overview is mm-hmm. which name they use for God. Yeah. Um, but you're getting that here, and this brings up a theological concept that is fun to think about. And it's the idea of uh, impassibility. Um, so 
a God who is transcendent, but also imminent, which means uh, God is absolute and different from human beings, but is also involved and present with human beings. That's transcendence and imminence. Okay. Impassibility is the idea of whether or not God can feel emotion. If God can feel emotion, what ramifications does this have on transcendent character? And this is actually really complicated. So is this the author's way of describing infinite absolutism? If God feels like this, that he's sorry and his heart aches, how is this God different from, say, Baal? The idea here is that this gives a strong credence of imminence, right? If God feels, if God is involved, if God is present in this way, that really elevates imminence. But it could be at the expense of transcendent differentiation from finite creation. So does God have a heart? If so, what are the great things theologically that come from that? And what are some of the problems that come from that? But despite that theological conversation, one of the interesting things here is that God also takes responsibility, right? It's not just God saying, those stupid humans, look what they did. God says, look what the humans did, and now I have to act. And that, I think, is something that is different from the other stories. Yeah. The difference is a kind of a predictability. This is a God who is not capricious, not amoral. You know that if you interact with this God in the proper way, your God, this God will respond to you in the way that can be expected. And it also says something about worshiping that God as a people. So if you have a soul unchallenged deity like this who has a possible universal morality to them, then it's possible to create situations where there's a foundation of, of society. And if people interact with that in the wrong way, then that foundation can be destroyed. And it also makes it possible for God to have covenants with humans, as we will see later, because if you're a God whose will can be changed by some other force or some other God, you can't set any kind of covenant or make any kind of promise. Yeah. Whereas this God, because of its transcendence, now God can interact with humans in that way that says, I have an eternal will that can be kept. I can keep promises to you. I'm predictable and I'm reliable in that sense. Yeah. And this gets into the conversation on like, can this God be known? Yeah. Um, and this God can be known. There's right. still a transcendent mystery. And yes, I also get frustrated with Christians who go, oh, we don't know the answer to that because God hasn't shown us. Well, it's not so much that God hasn't shown us. Um, God, is, at least here what we see in Genesis and kind of what I, I would argue we see in general is that God is very knowable. Mm -hmm. And that's what sets this God apart from the plethora of deities that are rampant in other cultures. Sure. And that's what they're trying to do here. I also can't hesitate to think of that impassibility question uh, and how God takes responsibility. And it's almost this like, well... This is what they decided to do. And think back to Genesis 1 and the moment where God recoughs. You, you yeah. think back to what we talked about in that chapter, in that episode. Uh, God recoughs. There's this moment where God stops and pauses, this sort of sacred pause before creation is made. And some of the rabbis talk about the reason God does that is because God knows what's going to happen. <laughs> and at, at, you know, and maybe not in an omniscient way like Christians talk about today. God knows what could potentially go wrong here. And now mm -hmm. we're here we are in Genesis 6, and it seems like God's saying, yeah, 
it happened. <laughs> yeah. And all of this, all of this so far, this sets the stage for the next part of the narrative where we get introduced to Noah. Well, I think here we could have, let's stop and make an outline then of Genesis chapter six. It starts out with people being violent as we were talking about before. And we have noticed throughout this that there is kind of a pattern that is followed, which is how we know these stories are somewhat connected to one another. We see a negative action. Um, in this case, it's the people being violent. Back earlier in Genesis, in Genesis 3, then we saw where Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's a negative action. And this creates a divine reaction. And this, in chapter 6 here, it's because Yahweh shows himself to be angry and disappointed in human beings. So that's the divine reaction to that negative action of the human beings. And again, notice it's not a moral issue. It's, it's, or it is a moral issue. It's not because humans are just annoying, but it's because they have created a situation which God has trouble interacting with. Um, but in this story, we have this righteous person, Noah. He's first mentioned to us at the end of chapter 5. And we see then Noah again. At this point now, God tells Noah to build the ark. And he has very exacting dimensions to how it should be built. And he has very exacting explanations about how God or Noah is supposed to bring two of every animal onto the ark, um, food for himself, and then his wife and his sons and their uh, wives. So... We see then the consequence of this as we get the 40-day flood. So we have the negative action, human beings are violent, divine reaction, God is disappointed. Now the consequence to that disappointment or, or to that divine reaction is that we have the flood. And then later on, we'll see a line at the very, I don't know, right in the middle somewhere or the beginning of chapter 7 where it says, God remembers Noah. And this is the point at which a reconciliation then begins. So there's always that pattern, negative action, divine reaction, consequence to that action and then God reconciling to the human beings. Yeah. And you're throughout Genesis six and into Genesis seven, you're going to see a, a shift in source and uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit here in a minute, but uh, let's just kind of walk through a little bit of the details of six and then we'll jump into the details then of seven. Once Noah's mentioned, we get a really quick context of the genealogy. So kind of attaches to the, the, the narrative so far. And uh, that's going to be really important for the future of what happens post-flood. So mentioning that genealogy has a, a role there, just we don't know what it is yet. We're told that Noah is righteous, which is the same Hebrew word as just. Um, Noah is embodies justice. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where you're getting that particular characteristic of, of God in comparison to what else you're seeing in the world. And Noah's kind of portrayed as this blameless, pure, complete, uh, and that word can also be translated as whole, which is very similar to the word for one, and humans are made for oneness. Uh, I think it's important to see that Noah is, it's be easy to go like he was just a holy and righteous man. It's important to go, Noah is embodying all of the characteristics that they were told to embody back in Genesis 2. Right. Noah is the first person to yeah. hear, at least in this situation, put that on display. So there's a reason that he's set apart. And the reason is because, you know, he's the only one doing the things they're supposed to do. And then uh, then you get this line that he went with God, which could also be translated. He walked with God. OK. Mm -hmm. the, this is not the first time we've seen this line. Exactly. This is a reference to Enoch. 
You, Enoch was the last person to walk with God, the result of which Enoch was removed from the earth. Here, somebody walks with God, and are they removed from the situation? Mm-hmm. No. Hmm. This person is left to deal with the situation. So where Enoch is removed, Noah, or Noach, is uh, given responsibility for reversing, which is what Noah's name means, if you remember that from Genesis 5. It's almost like you get this picture of, you know, somebody does it right. Yeah. Somebody embodies the oneness, the wholeness, the goodness. And God ain't going to remove this person again. He's going to insert this person into the mess. And the one to bring rest from the curses mm-hmm. is going to be capable of doing that because he is inherently different. It's like Noah is still in the garden and not everybody else is. So then the situation moves right into a uh, more elaborate portrayal of the problem. And again, there's various sources that work here. But you get some of this language is repeated. Some of it is different. Here we get this line that the earth is corrupt and filled with violence. And that was what Amy was just alluding to. And the interdependence that's alluded to here is, is fascinating because the earth is not described as contributing to the corruption and the violence, but the earth still experiences the effects. And you could say this started in Genesis 4, right? It's just gaining a head of steam. So all flesh, okay, and that doesn't mean all humans. It means flesh. Remember the bone of my bone, flesh is the weak part. All flesh is corrupt and unjust. So if Noah is just and the flesh that everybody else is embodying is unjust, and why is it corrupt and unjust? Violence. And so God says he's going to end all flesh, not humanity, Mm -hmm. just the flesh part. And this is God describing all of this to Noah now, telling Noah the situation, and then gives Noah these instructions to make a box, not a boat. Not That's not what an ark is. No, it's a box. It's a box. And this is in contrast to some of the Mesopotamian literature on, on floods. And here's one of the biggest retcons. Like, seriously, we get so caught up with the dang ark. <laughs> and we miss, we miss the important difference. Like, either we're, we're too stubborn to go, this has anything to do with those ancient Near Eastern pagans. And so we miss it. Or we get so caught up in the ark that we forget this is a retcon, a polemic against all of those cultures. You can't drive a box, right? The story for the search of immortality mm-hmm. was one of human ingenuity and, and human conquest. This one is a story of transcendent dependence because God's giving Noah all these instructions. And then mm-hmm. verse 17 God says, for my part, and you think back to God says, you know, all this, this is how bad the thing has gotten, but then takes responsibility for it. Well, here, gives the instructions to Noah and then says, for my part, which is, I say, the first description of how the covenant works. Noah ain't going to do anything with this box. Mm-hmm. Noah's going to sit in the box. God's going to be the one who is going to make sure that this goes according to plan. Okay. That is something that you have to catch in the flood narrative. So we're told all this, and then we're told that God is going to bring a flood of waters. And you have to remember here, 
the ancient conception of the universe. Okay, they didn't have NASA yet. They understood that there was the land and then the waters above and the waters below. You also have to understand that when those waters are going to come back and cover the earth again, that is not necessarily a description of a geological activity. That is a description of creation being uncreated. The earth is going to be like it was in the beginning. So automatically you should be seeing this is a restart. And God is going to bring the waters that will uncreate the world. God is also going to order the box that is going to help humanity survive and give a solution to this problem. So God's not antagonistic. God's not just imminent and supportive and helping empathically with Noah. Mm -hmm. God's doing all of this. God's creating something in the midst of this. Okay. And, and I would say, yeah, this is the first reference to the covenant. The, the covenant is a recreation of all the earth through the whole one, the one who is whole, Noach. And we're told a covenant gets established here through one family who's going to help recreate the world, which sounds exactly like Genesis 12. So I think yep. we're being set up for a pattern or a motif that's going to imbue itself on the rest of the Israelite tradition. Yeah. Um, and, and notice here too, creation is also included at the end of this chapter. Yes, creation is. is part of this. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it uses almost exact language as Genesis 1 and how it discusses how creation is involved within this situation. But this is where you got to see it's a box. And uh, this is an uncreation. So then we got to go, all right, so what happens next? And that takes us into Genesis chapter 7. So the first thing to notice about Genesis 7 is we're working with the same story here. But it's a little bit different. And you'll notice right away, you get the phrase, Lord God. Now, up until this point, uh, towards the end of Genesis 6, we were getting God, Elohim. And now we get that uh, tetragrammaton thrown in here. Uh, I, I refuse to say it. Adonai is how I, is how I say it. So this appears different. And you're also going to notice that we're going to get different details. And the details are going to better reflect Genesis 2. And this is what we've been talking about with the sources go back and forth. A lot of the text so far in Genesis, you could almost attribute a, an entire chapter to an entire source. Now, the sources are interspersing themselves throughout the chapters, and it gets a little bit more complicated. And if you're not willing to acknowledge that, you're left with some difficult math and coming up with weird theories trying to explain this. Um, one of the differences you're, you're going to see is the animals we're told different numbers for. We're told that the duration of this event is different. And so you can go ahead and try to resolve them. And you know what? have fun or you can see the beauty of composition and the emphasis that these different details offer. But that's one of the problems that we're going to have with Genesis seven. Yeah, we do. Um, for example, you start out with two animals, two by two in chapter six, and now all of a sudden it's seven. And why is that? Well, probably because if this was uh, about, clean and unclean animals. Well, that idea really didn't come along until later. Uh, but if you, 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 they, they need to have so many clean animals because we'll see then in chapter 9, 
Noah makes a sacrifice when he gets out of the ark. Well, if he makes a sacrifice and there's only two animals, what's going to happen? So they need those clean animals to make that sacrifice. But it's looking forward to the people who wrote this section of it would have been looking forward to perhaps the book of Leviticus, which would have been a priestly source, although I think this is Yahweh's source, isn't it? Yeah, but some priestly characteristics are imbued within it. It gets really interwoven, so it's almost hard to separate the two, which is kind of unique and really brilliant when you think about the way they edited this and put these two sources together. Um, but they would have been looking forward to more um, some of those rituals and some of those sacrificial laws mm-hmm. in order to make the story do what it's supposed to do, be you know present the ideas that it's supposed to present. Yeah, and if you ask the question, well, why would why would they change the number of animals? You have to ask a different question. What's the significance of two animals of each kind? And what's the significance of seven animals? And does that reflect the actual author and source and the agenda that they have for how they're describing Israel? Yeah. So if the same group that wrote Genesis 1 is writing this part about seven animals, well, where have you seen seven before? Is there a certain completeness, a certain holiness to that number of animals as a new creation is about to start? If you're looking at two animals and the role that plays within Genesis 2 and how uh, the human beings are supposed to help the uh, created species continue to multiply and produce and uh, do what they're supposed to do on the earth, well, you need at least two. So I, I, I'm just one. I don't, I don't care about the discrepancies. I, I don't look at it as people go like, see, the Bible's false. I, I go, you're not reading literature very well. And the people who get too caught up in trying to mitigate the differences, that, so what, why are you working so hard at not paying attention to what the story's saying? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, I think there's, yeah, that's a my take on here. it. But mm-hmm. definitely. Um, now, from here, uh, I just want to hit on a couple details because again, the the narrative here of Genesis seven, I would say Genesis seven is a relatively skipped chapter of the Bible, just because like we get into the flood, Genesis six, and it's very exciting and a lot of rich details, and we get to seven, you're like, oh, this is it's the same thing. I wonder what's going to happen next, and we just skip ahead a little bit. Um, and that's that kind of the way it is with Genesis 7, but there are some details worth paying attention to. Uh, first is the use of the word 40, which this is one hasn't come up yet. Um, but numbers in Jewish imagination, so important. 40 is one of those numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 40 is going to come up again for uh, Israel coming out of Exodus, or out of Egypt in the Exodus. And 40, I would, the best way to explain it is 40 is a Jewish way of saying a very long time. Right, yeah. And to compare the situation of the flood, which is a restart of creation, to uh, the Exodus narrative, which is another restart of creation, um, I think that is very intentional. Uh, So that number is important. Another detail that uh, I like paying attention to is how the ark is hovering above the waters. Remember, Ark is a box, and this box with the potential of creation in it is hovering above the waters. Where else have we seen that word used? Mm-hmm. Ah, Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. So, you, and you'll notice this, a lot of the details included here are giving imagery back to the first creation story. And I, I think that's a way of going, hey, this is another creation story. Um We're also told that the windows of the skies are torn open. 
right. which is a reference there. If you're keeping track at home, there's also a line in Jesus's baptism where the skies are torn open. So, yeah, I'm definitely saying that Jesus's baptism is a form of creation that's supposed to replicate Genesis 1 and 2 in the flood. Yeah. But that's a different uh, episode. Um, and then uh, we, we have this issue of the whole earth. Yeah. Does the flood cover the whole earth? Now, remember, we said there's hundreds of flood stories out there. And here's the only thing I'm going to say about that. Well, I'm actually going to say two things. <laughs> okay. The first thing is that there is a very real chance that in an area where life surrounded uh, inhabiting proximity to rivers mm-hmm. that when those rivers flooded such as the Nile or the Tigris or the Euphrates if your understanding of the whole earth was the two miles of land that you treaded upon your entire life right is it inaccurate to say that the whole earth flooded I don't know something to think about um, the other thing is if we get caught up in whether or not the entire earth geologically flooded at one point in history, let me just tell you, I think you're going to miss the point of Genesis chapters six through eight. Absolutely. Now you want to make that case. You want to dive into the science. You want to go out and prove that argument. I got no qualms with that. You go ahead and do it. I'm not going to spend my time there because I think there is more going on here that is worth our time. So I just want to walk through a couple of the details that I think um, that I think are important here in Genesis 7, and then we will move quickly on to Genesis chapter 8. Okay. Um, but first, when he's talking about Noah here, you get this uh, line that God says, he did all that I commanded. And that's then equivalented. What's the word? Equ- equivalented? That's not no, a word. No, it's... I don't know. I'm not sure what it's, you're looking for. It leads to his righteousness. I'm right. not I'm not as it's good with words to, as people think. It's an equivalent to. Yeah, it's an equivalent um, to, perhaps. So a person finally listens to God and mm-hmm. does life accordingly, which is what the garden was all about. So Noah's living like he's still in the garden. So you see that in 6. You're seeing that again in 7. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, verse 4 in chapter 7, uh, a way we might, you know, translate this is... Remember when I made everything from the Adama, you know, because the Adama makes the Adam. Mm-hmm. After I separated the waters, well, Noah, I'm starting over. And the waters are coming back and the Adama will be gone. And again, you're, you're getting in Genesis 7 a huge equivalent to Genesis 2. And that language is all still used, the water and the Adama. Um, and that's all for this picture of new creation where what was is being exterminated because the water's coming back. So we should be going back to Genesis 2 here, where maybe Genesis 6 takes us a little bit more back to Genesis 1. Um, but they're both making the same point. Um, and then the seven days uh, refrain, which has a, an equivalent in some ancient Near Eastern stories. Sure but also, Jewish people, seven days, it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you just hear new creation after new creation. Um We're told in verse 11, the great abyss and water from the skies, and that's that dual separated water 
that's now covering the earth again. Um, and then another reminder of the creation story is in verse 13 and 14, where we're told about the people and the animals. And the animal part talks about all this, the given categories that we're right. told in creation, mm-hmm. each to its kind, each to its kind. Yeah. Um, it, so again, it, it's just creation, 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 creation. Um, and then verse 17, we get a whole lot of details. So the vessel gets lifted. So the new new creation is getting separated from the old creation, right, by the water, so that God can carry this process out and recreate the world. The vessel gets lifted, and uh, the, just the fact that the water is so emphasized as the destructive medium of choice. Why? Because it's the primal essence of the world. And I think what you get here, once that water covers, you know, we want to get caught up in, oh, it rained a lot, and here's how the water came up from the ground, and... Um, we, we want to get caught up in that, that the flood itself, which there's not really a Hebrew word here for flood. It's, it's all about water covering the earth. Right, okay. So maybe we should just change the name of the story. Mm-hmm. We call it the flood story. Yeah. We should change the name of the story. What it do you think we should change it to? Something like the second creation. Yeah, maybe. Like the, the recreation. Re- recreation story. I don't yeah. know. Creation part two. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 2.0. But... If that's the picture, the water covering the earth, you're also getting a, a recl- reclamation of tohu vavohu, we, we talked mm-hmm. about in Genesis 1. Yeah. Where there's this rawness of the world with the waters just moving on the earth and everything else is gone. So there's the, the, the darkness and, you know, birds having no place to land. Uh, within the tohu vavohu, you can see the process but this is where I want to bring that impassibility conversation back. You can kind of feel God's pain within this. Okay. You know, uh, imagine imagine what that would be like of the amount of people who are dead, the mm-hmm. carcasses floating about. Like it wasn't like pristine Jamaican water here. <laughs> no. It, it's, it's that tohu vavohu water. And... I think we often look at this as, you know, God's punishing the people, but God's actually restoring something. And, and I look at this more as, you know, someone who comes in and uproots a garden that has gone bad to allow it to grow correctly again. And God even seems to lament that, you know, he created this thing that's gone in the wrong direction and he needs to do something about it. And it breaks his heart, not just that the humans were corrupt and wicked. I think it breaks God's heart that God has to uh, undo something that was once called good. Yeah. And I don't know that we often pay attention to that, but there seems to be this uh, the semblance of lament. Sure. In, in the process. Um, and then, you know, you get into verses 19 through 24, the process is complete. Uh, all life is exterminated and, uh, we're, it's going to start moving then into the end of the flood, which the end of the flood is actually the beginning of a new creation. Um, and you had brought up that pattern that we see, right? Um, and we talked about at the in the Genesis 3 episode about how God removing the first humans from the garden was actually a form of protection. Right. Well, in chapter 7, verse 16, we're told that God shuts them in the mm-hmm. box, the ark. 
um, which also implies that he's shutting them away from anything else. And so another picture that I just don't see brought up within this, because we just so often focus on like God's punishing humanity. Yes, this is a very wrathful kind of thing and not necessarily. And so like, is it wrathful? Definitely could make that argument. I tend to focus on, I think that God is lamenting. At the same time, we get a picture here in verse 16 that God is protecting people Mm -hmm. and, and the animals that are included with creation there. Right. Um, right. It's kind of like you've talked about where there might be a consequence to something and yet you protect as well. It's like as a parent. Yes. It's that same idea. But another f- part that's interesting here is in other stories, the hero of the story often shuts themselves in the ark yeah. uh, or in the boat. And here God, God shuts the people in the box. Mm-hmm. So who's in control here? Uh, this is God's doing. Yeah. Once this again, is, you have a, a God who is in control of the situation. God is not afraid of these waters. God is in control of these waters. Yeah. God is protecting the human, you know, rather than the other gods who are almost come undone by their own actions. This God is definitely transcendent from that. This God is definitely in control of what's going on. All right. So now we move into Genesis chapter eight, and this is yep. where the narrative starts shifting a little bit. Uh, the sources start shifting here too. So mm-hmm. we get back to Elohim now. Um, and you get this line that God remembers. God which I, remembers. Which I read him like, yeah. did God forget? Why do they have to tell us God God remembers? And and that could also be translated as, and God considered Noah. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you see going on here now that we get into this part of the story? Yeah, well, to me, this is now that reconciliation, the final step to these patterns that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, because now... God remembers Noah. So then he sends wind to blow over the water. And you were talking about that imagery from Genesis 1. This is definitely it. I mean, even apparent even to me that, um, you know, this is a situation where the the water is being blown away. This wind blows over the water and allows dry land to appear. And the word word for wind could also be spirit or breath. It is. It's ruach, isn't it? Is that how you pronounce that word? Yeah. This word I actually looked up to make sure it was the same word. So, yeah. So this is what you see there. And so then again, the ark lands on a mountain. Um, And then God releases birds. Uh, This happens in a lot of the other stories as well. But releasing the birds to find out if there's land. I don't know if there's any significance to the birds. Is there? I see a look on Tyler's face. So please tell us, Tyler, what's going on here. Well, we got to start. We got to back up a little bit. Okay. So the water ends. We're told that the, the water stops coming. Right. And then it begins to recede. But it's not done yet, so there's going to be a process here. Right. Which, you know, it's another that's how days. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 happen. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm not being clear enough, this is another creation story. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And land begins to appear. So, again, here's where you want to get caught in the formal details. Uh, you want to use this to disprove the legim- legitimacy of the Bible. Or you want to use this to... Uh, find the actual location and build a replica, except you built a boat, not a box. You can do all that. And you can miss the very intention of the story. Creation has been restarted. And if you miss this, you're going to miss the overwhelming theme of the rest of the Judeo-Christian narrative, which I'm looking at you, America. (laughs) Anyways, don't try so hard to miss the point here. Uh, Because you can go look for the mountain called uh, Ararat. Mm Mm-hmm. I know people have done this. Oh, they've tried. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Claims have been made, but... 
Good luck. They never pan out. You know why it's good luck? Because Ararat is just a Hebrew word, which means the curse reversed. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's yeah. awesome. I don't understand. Just read the text. Where did Noah land the boat? The place where the curse was reversed. That's all that is. Let it be that. <laughs> because that's more beautiful than finding a specific mountain. For sure. Why would is. we not pay attention to those details? Anyways, the birds. Okay, so you get a raven, mm-hmm. uh, a dark bird. Because um, it, it's not it's, the word's not actually raven. It's more a, a, a general species of a swarming bird. Okay. Crow might actually be better. Okay. Here, mm-hmm. um, but the raven is sent, and we find out that the waters are beginning to dry up, but they're still present. Mm-hmm. And then a dove is used, and a dove again. Translations hard here, light bird, gentle bird, also feeble bird. Okay. So these are more two general categories of birds mm-hmm. than specific birds okay. we associate them with. Right. Um, and, and that's fine. Uh, so there's still water. Dove waits seven days. Mm-hmm. Hint, hint. Returns with an olive branch. And then another seven days. Mm-hmm. So you get two sets of seven days. With a dove and an olive branch. And this is where everybody said, please turn your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. Because this is all Levitical imagery here. And I think that's really important. So you got the Levitical in, uh, imagery and you've got the two sets of seven days. So the first creation in Genesis 1, remember this is Elohim being used here. Right. So Genesis 1, how long did that take? Seven Seven days. days. So now you have seven days, mm-hmm. let's stop, and then another seven days, and now it's good. What just happened? A new creation. A new creation. Now the dub is going to be really important for the sacrificial system in the general masses of Israel uh, for the next however many years. Okay. Uh, they're going to be really important. The olive branch, olives, becomes not only an economic staple of Israel, um, but the actual olive oil that is used within Israel's sacrificial system is really important. Um, okay. So I, I think, I think that's places. where that comes in. Um, again, we want to fast forward for people who are, you, you don't like the Old Testament, you don't like the Hebrew Scriptures, you just want to know what this has to do with Jesus. Um, a dove begins to be associated with God's spirit or breath or wind, mm-hmm. the Ruach, um, which at Jesus' baptism is also present. So that's interesting. Um but here's the biggest thing that I think is important with the birds. Okay. Which has nothing to do with birds. It's a word that appears four times in this chapter and doesn't appear that often in the Torah or especially Genesis. Okay. It's the word shuv, which uh, the, the phrase that m- people are more familiar with with that word is teshuva. I'm looking at Amy. She's looking she's at me picking. and I'm still shaking my head. Teshuva. It is means this... repent. Oh. So if uh, okay. if Jesus was speaking Hebrew, uh-huh. he's probably speaking Aramaic, but using the, the historical Hebrew, uh-huh. and he would say, Teshuva, for the kingdom of God is near. That's the word repent. And that's a word that's used for Israel when they're told about the blessings and the cursings and uh, curses and if they're going to choose exile and repent and return is shuv. 
and the wow. the dove specifically shoes again and again and again and again. Now we okay. could repent. You should, you there's there's good preaching material there, I'm sure, mm-hmm. and we could come up with different uh, hermeneutical approaches to that word being used. I do think it is a good indicator of uh, the nature of what's going on here, mm-hmm. because that idea, especially within the book uh, Deuteronomy, and going into the Deuteronomistic history from there on out, you're gonna okay. get you're gonna get that phrase a lot. That's what I think is most important about the bird. This is brilliant. Tyler, That's, because the birds appear in all those Mesopotamian stories. They never shoot. But try it. But what do the Bible writers do? They take that simple yeah. imagery, you know, of there was a raven, there was a dove, these birds. Yeah. And yeah, and, and one used a swallow. So it was like they're different birds. And it's like not a big part of the story, perhaps just incidental. Yeah. And here they take it and they say, no, this is important. Yeah, this, they, they this symbolism is important. They embed to it our with future. imagery. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is about us and our identity. And that's where you have to start with. Look, they're copying this story, but then they're changing things. Yeah. Pay attention to what they're changing. Right. It'll it'll unleash the whole thing. Um, now we've been getting very explicit dates uh, throughout this. Like it'll reference yeah. like the first month, of this mm-hmm. month, and this date of this. Yeah, I um, heard about that. And right here in the story in Genesis eight, you get a really important one. In the six hundred and first year, on the first month of the first day. And that means that this is a new year, which better translated would mean a new cycle. Okay. So here the creation has been restarted. You know, the, the waters have, have parted and the land forms. Creation's here again. And it also at that time starts a new cycle. Um, so it's not huge for interpreting the text, I don't think. But I do think it's an important detail to just notice and appreciate. Yeah. Um, and this is where we're told that the earth was dry. Okay. And then, you know, we talked about flesh. Every living thing of flesh comes up. So we can't say flesh is negative. Mm-hmm. We can't uh, create that dichotomy. Um, here, the flesh is talked about as being part of the new creation. So God doesn't remove the flesh. You could say restarts the flesh. Okay. Um, and they're told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So just think about the picture of Genesis 8. Mm-hmm. It, just the whole thing, again, the waters cover the earth. Yep. Waters recede, land appears. There's uh, creation. You know, birds are talked about, plants, animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get the mention of humans and flesh. And then they're told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is all, I, I'm sick of saying it. It's a creation story. <laughs> Definitely is. Um, but if we have to, we have to emphasize this flesh part because you're going to get a lot of language from Paul later in the epistles about the flesh. Okay. And in Christian nomenclature, flesh has become this way of talking about like terrible things. Isn't it sort of a Greek philosophy creeping in? Yeah, I think we don't so. Need to go there, right? But no, yeah. but yeah. Um, but the flesh. The flesh can be bad, but the flesh itself is not bad. And we have to be careful about that. The flesh is talked about. It's this finite, limited component of human nature. It's it's the part of us that is at risk of doing immensely wrong things. It also has all of this potential. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to just get rid of the flesh, right? That's not the problem. It's what we do with it. Um, 
And, and that's just a dichotomy and a dualism that we create a lot where we go, oh, this thing is all bad. Eh, mm-hmm. Be careful, right? Um, so that flesh start part uh, makes its way back into the texture. And then um, you get a covenantal response at the end of Genesis 8. So is there anything I miss? Anything that you are yeah. like, yeah, we need to go back? Uh, no, is this where... Noah does the sacrifice at the end of, gen- of chapter uh, eight. Yeah. Yeah. Builds an altar. He builds the altar. And, mm-hmm. you know, and again, that's one of those places that it's definitely a different kind of sacrifice than was offered in the other stories. Because in this case, it's not something that God needs from Noah to do, but it's Noah offering that in Thanksgiving of saying, look, I, I made it through. This is it. Yeah. And again, this is a God that is predictable, reliable, dependable, and whose will is going to last. It's not something that can be changed. So... Yeah, and the, and the sacrifice itself is uh, made in response to the covenant. Yeah. Um, okay. And it's uh, every clean animal is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so that Levitical imagery is creeping back in. And this would technically be a burnt offering, which you all just have to wait till Leviticus for yeah, that stuff. Yeah. But this is um, all very Levitical. It's it's not it's not a way to appease this god right it's it's a way for to like you said offer thanksgiving to mm-hmm. connect with god mm-hmm. um to approach the divine um so it's a very different disposition i think um and you you do get that pleasing odor yeah reference which is going to come up in leviticus as well and then god says that he's never again going to curse the ground because of humankind or destroy right uh and I think this is a little bit of foreshadowing that will happen here with a similar situation soon. Mm-hmm. Um, because in all of this, not going to destroy it because uh, the human, the Adam, and that's the word there. Right. So in Genesis 2, it was translating Adam as Adam. Right. And now it's translating Adam as human. Mm-hmm. So I just want to pay, make sure we're paying attention. It's the same word. Right. Just because your Bible translated differently doesn't mean you can make hermeneutical leaps there. Um, because the human heart or the seat of thought is evil. Right. So this is the first time we've seen this word, evil. Okay. It hasn't shown up yet in the Bible. Um, and I don't know. I All I'm going to say is evil and sin are different. Mm-hmm. So Genesis 4 and 5, we unpack that word sin. Um, that's not what's being referred to here. And if I'm not mistaken, in Genesis 6 through 8, we don't get the word sin once. No. Do we? No, we don't. No, this is no talked it about, say that the heart is evil or bad or wicked, but never does it use the word sin. Yeah, and, and that's just, pay attention to those differences there. I, I hear a lot of people say the flood happened because of human sin, mm-hmm. and it doesn't, it doesn't say that. It does talk about evil, though, and mm-hmm. those are different. Um. And then we get a line about how God had said in his heart about the human heart, which is just lots of hearts going around here. Um, But also that word heart that we've been talking about can be translated as imagination or um, the the human form or framework or Mm -hmm. purpose. Um, and, And there is this emphasis here of a difference in the essence of a transcendent being versus a sentient being. Right. Uh, And then if we want to go back to the evil thing, the only thing I'd say about that is evil is intentional overextension, right? What's going to be called in Leviticus intentional sin. 
Um, and there's a difference between missing the mark, like you're shooting an arrow and mm-hmm. you miss the mark versus like going to shoot an arrow and just randomly aiming somewhere and trying to hit somebody else. That's the difference between sin and evil, yeah, if that metaphor yeah. works at all. Um, but I think the uh, the emphasis here is this the human heart versus God's heart, you know, that keeps coming up. They're different imaginations, and there's a clear difference, as we saw with Genesis 6 at the beginning, with that really strange passage. There's a difference between the transcendent and the the, the sentient, the, yeah. the human, the limited, the finite. Um, and that shows up again here. And God, the transcendent one, is not going to destroy the earth again because of the limitations of the human imagination. Right. That's how I translate. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's not necessarily right. a punishment. It's just, you know, God is going to not change things. Yeah. Yeah, and it's this flood isn't caused by anything, but it's also something that human beings, it's not because of a change of heart. Humans don't deserve to get this recreation. It's just something that God does for them. Uh, real quick, I want to go back to something we said about the, the altar, because you had mentioned this. Okay. Um, when we started this episode about God smelling what comes from the altar, it pleases God. Um, and it's, it's once God sees this response from Noah that he confirms that everything is good, ready to move forward, seals mm-hmm. the covenant. Mm-hmm. And this follows the exact pattern of um, ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian flood narratives. Right. Like it's, it's right there. Sure. Um, the sacrifice after the floods recede, their aroma pleases the gods. Um, but there, this is where we see, this is what you were talking about. There's one major difference that I think the author is trying to make a point about in those stories, the gods eat like viscerally eat the sacrifice. Right. We get no mention of that here. So no. that's, again, pay attention to the details. Mm-hmm. What, what do the Jewish people leave out? The eating part. God doesn't eat the sacrifices like the other gods. God doesn't need the sacrifice. Right. The human does, and God enjoys it with the human. Right. Um, so that's a, it, it ends with uh, a slight reference to how now the cycles of the earth will endure, and, mm-hmm. it, and it brings that up. Um, but that is, we're not calling it the flood narrative. That is the second creation story. I love it. Um, which is like we started by saying this is one of the most popular stories people know about this and I I hope we've at least made a case that maybe we don't know as much about it as we claim to now the next chapter chapter 9 is sort of the denouement of the flood narrative but um, chapter 9 introduces some brand new things that are going to set up the next part of the story. And we're almost to the end of the primitive history. And uh, things are going to change here soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going we're gonna to leave chapter 9 as its own episode because it's kind of set apart from 6 through 8. And it's not quite going on with Genesis 10 and 11. So that's what we'll do next time on the Bible Archives. <laughs>